let's pray. God, once again, we thank you for this day. We thank you just for the joy that is inherent in it. And we pray, God, that that joy would fill this room now. We are so thankful that you have saved us. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Now, as we turn to your word, God, I pray that you would speak to us uh, just how possibly, God, can we capture the beauty and the magnitude of what happened on Easter morning 2,000 years ago in just a few words? We can't, except that you would speak through me in this moment. And so we pray, God, that you would speak. We pray uh, that you would open hearts and eyes and ears to receive what it is that you have to speak to us this morning. And above all, God, we pray that the beauty and the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ would be seen so clearly in these moments. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Just get a drink. Some of you may remember, uh, last year on Easter was our first Sunday back together in person. We had a keyboard, and that was it. And it was beautiful, and it like God was honored by that. Uh, but what an amazing thing to look back on this last year and then to look around the sanctuary this morning and to see this amazing worship band. Thank you, Junior. And uh, one, of my, one of my favorite verses, and I'll just, I'm not even going to say it's one of my favorite, I'm going to say it's one of the best verses. They're all good in scripture is from Lamentations chapter three. And the author of Lamentations, we think it's Jeremiah, he's talking about how awful things are. But then right in the middle of chapter three, he says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And the story of ALCF, the story of these last three, three few years, is the faithfulness of God. And, and it is seen most clearly in what happened on Easter. So let's celebrate that this morning. Will you turn with me in your Bibles? Or you can watch on the screen. I'm going to be reading out of uh, the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 16. Mark 16, verse 1, and I'll read eight verses. Mark 16, 1 through 8. It says, when the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, have you ever been afraid? I'm not talking about like anxious and nervous. I'm not talking about worried. I'm talking about have you ever been afraid? Like really 
terrified, afraid. Uh, I spent some time this week asking myself that question. What are the times in my life that I have been most afraid? Really like edifying thing to do the week of Easter, Holy Week. Think about when I was most scared. Uh, One that kept coming to mind uh, was the night in 10th grade uh, when my best friend and I went to see the movie The Blair Witch Project. That was a mistake. (laughs) Don't watch it. Uh, but but the, the, another one kept coming to mind that actually was way more scary uh, than the night that I went and saw the Blair Witch Project. And one of the one of the one of the moments in my life that I have been the most terrified uh, came on. I actually I know the date. Came on September twenty first, two thousand and nine. Uh, and let me just paint the picture for you of how I got to that point of such kind of terror. Uh, so that was on Monday. Friday would have been September eighteenth, two thousand and nine. And uh, both my wife, Beth, and I came home from work, long, arduous week of work, and we settled into what was a pretty typical Friday night routine for us uh, at that time. We ordered a pizza from Papa John's, just around the corner, uh, turned on some Friday night television, uh, sat down on the couch, I kicked my feet up, and cracked open an ice-cold, refreshing Mountain Dew. (laughs) We really knew how to live it up in those days. Uh, ate our pizza, we're watching TV, and, uh, and all of a sudden, my wife Beth starts indicating that she's not feeling great. And it's kind of coming in intervals. Like she doesn't feel well, and then it passes. She doesn't feel well, and then it passes. And oh, by the way, she was nine months pregnant with our first child. Uh, we were two weeks away from the due date. And so uh, it continued, uh, a few calls to the doctor's office, you know, kind of the deal of where it's like you're timing it and what's the level of, in- is it a one through 10 on the level of intensity? And it's like, I don't know, but it hurts. And, uh, and it started to become clear that we needed to go to the hospital. And so um, probably we waited too long. Uh, it was our first child. And so, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing. Still don't, but whatever. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so we, we head to the hospital. She's in a lot of pain. Uh, I pull out my phone as we're driving. Uh, had an earpiece. Didn't hold it up to my ear. Don't worry. And I called both of our, you know, our parents, my parents and her parents. And um, probably with the same tone I would have used if I was standing in my front yard watching my house burn to the ground. Like, it's happening. It's happening. We're going. It's happening. We're on the way. But that wasn't my moment of greatest terror. So we got to the hospital, uh, you know, they admit us, Uh, we get into a delivery room sometime in the wee hours of September 19th, like I don't remember exactly, three, four o'clock in the morning, uh, our first child was born, Maggie. Everything went smoothly, uh, was awesome, you know, amazing, as you can only imagine what the birth of your first child is like. Um, so we kind of we kind of go through the whole delivery process, and then it's we're up all night, and they move us to Beth's hospital room, and we get there in the morning. I'm gonna call it like eight, nine o'clock in the morning, and uh, we get in there, we get settled, and the nurses are like, we're gonna take the baby to the nursery so that you can get some sleep. And again, this is our first uh, our first baby, and so I don't really know what my role is, and so I'm kind of like, so is this the moment that I go home? And, uh, and, and I was like, you know, what, what, so what should I do? And she was the nurse. She's like, no, 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 no. She's like, that couch right there pulls out into a bed. And she's like, would you like me to bring you some blankets and a pillow? And I'm like, yes, I would. Thank you very much. 
So they take the baby, Beth and I conk out right there in the hospital room. And, and when, I, when we wake up kind of later in the morning, you know, I've got messages from friends and family. My boss has sent me a message saying like emphatically, stay off your phone for the next few days. Uh, my company very graciously gave me two days of paternity leave for the birth of my child. I know, I, like, I thought it was great at the time, and then I moved out here. And out here, the companies are like, when your child goes to kindergarten, if you could please come back, that would be great. But if not, that's all right, we'll keep paying you, no worries. Uh, it was our first child, and so I had, we had, I had no reason to be home. And so for the next three days, the hospital will let us stay for three days, we just had a little staycation right there in the hospital. I mean, it was literally, it was like a vacation. Maybe less so for Beth, probably, definitely less so for Beth. But, but it was like uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, all delivered. What do you want? They bring it to you. You're hungry for a snack in the middle? They'll bring it to you. The baby needs changed? They change the baby. That you want a nap? They take the baby to the, to the nursery. There's cable TV. Uh, there's one of those fancy coffee machines down in the lobby. You know, lattes, cappuccinos, French vanilla, whatever you want, anytime you want it. And uh, we just settled in. And it was like a bunch of other first-time parents on the floor. And so it was like kind of being on a cruise ship with a bunch of friends, right? It'd be like, you know, should we go to the swaddling class at 1.30? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. I think the Joneses are going to be there. Uh, you know, oh, the Smiths are going to the diaper-changing class at 4. And then we're going to go to the cafeteria for coffee afterwards. Like, great. That sounds wonderful. So it was, it was really a, a really fun time. Uh, but then, Sunday night. I'm watching Sunday night football. Beth and the baby are resting. Nurse comes in, and I'm like, oh, is it time for ice cream? (laughs) And she's like, I need to give you some paperwork that you need to start filling out, because tomorrow you're going to be discharged. I was like, what? (laughs) We have to go home? And so very restless sleep that night. We, you know, get up the next morning, we start packing up our things, we fill out the paperwork, and I just remember this overwhelming sense of terror coming over me because it's like, uh, you just let me take her home? Like, who's going to help us at home? Who's going to tell us what to do? I had to jump through more hoops to get my driver's license than to take a human being home with me. They just check the car seat and then they're like, have a good life. Uh, we both cried on the way home. <laughs> Beth for joy, me for terror. <laughs> Why? I mean, obviously I'm being a little bit facetious, but not really. It was really scary. Why? Because to bring a baby home changes everything. You, you can't bring a newborn child home with you and decide, you know what? I'm just going to set this to the side and I'll come back to it when it's convenient. You, you're no longer in control. It's, it's not your world anymore. It's their world, and you just live in it. To, to bring a newborn home from the hospital changes everything. And I knew from that moment on, my life would never be the same. Now, we did it three more times, so it wasn't that bad. It's like we, we, we figured out how it works, and it's great, and it's been amazing. But to, but to take home my first baby from the hospital was really, really scary. So, so let me return to the original question. Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been like, like really afraid? 
I thought for a moment about having like an open mic time right now because let's, let's be honest, I've lived a pretty tame life. Like if that's my moment of terror, like you're doing pretty well, Gary. Uh, we don't, time doesn't permit it. Obviously, logistics wouldn't permit it. But if, if some of you could come up here and share the moments in your life that you have been most afraid, there would be some of us in the room who literally wouldn't be able to believe the things that some of us have been through. If, if some of you could come up here and share the moments that you have been most afraid or most terrified, there wouldn't be a dry eye in this room because of some of the horrific and horrendous things some of us have lived through. What is it that makes us afraid? Why are we fearful? Why do we get afraid? Why are we terrified? Now, I think there's some basic things like when our safety is, is in question, when our security is in question, when we're f- stepping into something that's unknown, um, when we're surprised or confused. Uh, and I am not a psychologist. I am not a sociologist. I don't have, uh, like, I don't have training in anything of value, well, I guess theology, but um, that, that's of some value. But like, I can't speak with any kind of authority uh, about, about what I'm about to say. This is just amateur Gary and his own amateur conclusions. But I think one of the common denominators of, of, of all things that, that make us fearful, I think one of the common denominators of, of situations of terror or fear comes back to control. I think we get really afraid when we realize that we are not in control. Whether that's a scary movie, whether that's a roller coaster, I got some kids in my family who are not fans of roller coasters, and at the heart of it, it's because you're strapped into this thing and you don't have any say in where you go, how you go, how fast you go. You can't be like, you know what, I'm gonna skip this hill, I'd like to not do that loop-de-loop. You're in it and you're out of con- you don't have control. Whether it's a newborn baby, whether it's sickness, whether it's cancer, whether it's war, whether it's abuse, whether it's death. I think one of the common denominators for the reasons that we are, we are afraid of things is because they remind us we are afraid in situations that we realize that we are not in control. And it's one of the, like, one of the heartbeats of the human predicament because we love control. We love to be in control. We love to feel like we're in control. But the truth of the matter is, is that life and the world and roller coasters and babies and sickness and disease and death are constantly reminding us that we're not in control. And that can be very scary. So here we are, Easter morning, and you're like, Pastor Gary, why are you talking about fear so much? Like, Easter is supposed to be about joy and sunshine and flowers and, and bunnies. I mean, that's not what it's really supposed to be about, but you know what I'm getting at. And like, here you are, like, throwing a damper on the whole thing, talking about when was the time you were most afraid? Like, that's not what I want to think about this morning. Well, here's the deal. As a preacher of God's word, my job is not to tell you what I think. It is not to tell you what I think you want to hear or what I want you to hear. My job in this moment is to try and convey as best I can what God is telling us through his word. And as we look at these eight verses that we are studying this morning, Mark chapter 16, the overwhelming theme of these eight verses is what? It's fear. It's like all over this passage. And so we just got to sit into that and, and lean into that. And is that a little bit weird for Easter morning? Maybe. 
But my hope is in the next few moments as we work through these, these verses that we're going to come to actually an appreciation and an understanding of why Mark talks so much about fear in these verses, in this story about the women going to the tomb and finding an empty tomb. If you are visiting with us this morning, I want to extend a really heartfelt welcome. We are so glad that you are here. You are welcome in this place. I want to catch you up on where we are at in our teaching series. We have been in a long range, many months study of a book in the Bible called the Gospel of Mark. The Bible gives us four biographies of Jesus Christ's life. They're called Gospels. Each comes with a different perspective on the life of Jesus. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest. It is the first one that is written. It is the most simple and generally regarded to be the easiest to understand. And we are not quite done with it. But today we got to skip to the end, which for my personality, like I hate, because I like to do things in order. I like to do them the right way. Like some of you, I know you start reading a book and after the third chapter, you're like, I got to see how this ends. And you flip to the end and read the last chapter. You're sick. We love you. But, but I hate to skip to the end, but it's what we got to do because it's Easter and we're talking about what happened on Easter. And you know what? Most of us know how the story ended anyway. So it's not like a huge, it's not going to huge mess up uh, when we go back and continue working through the gospel of Mark. But we're calling this series, Let's Go. Because the gospel of Mark is a call to action. It is a reminder to all of us that following Jesus is more than about what we believe in our heart and what we believe in our head and what we believe in our heart. It is what we do with our hands as well. Three things we're going to see in this passage that the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us. Three things I want to draw out, truths that we can apply to our lives. And the first one is this. We look for life where it can't be found. We look for life where it can't be found. So let's just enter into this story as best we can. If you were here for Good Friday, we, we ripped off a big chunk of scripture that leads up to this moment. Uh, but Jesus Christ has been crucified on Friday. He dies sometime in the afternoon on Friday. A man named Joseph of Arimathea, who is a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. I love this. Mark says in chapter 15 that Joseph took courage. And he went and asked Pilate, the Roman governor, for the body of Jesus Christ. Pilate says he can have it. Joseph takes his body down from the cross, and along with the help of some of these women who show up in our text today, he takes Jesus' body and he lays it in his own personal family tomb. Tombs in those days for the Jewish people were caves, uh, natural caves in rock or caves that were cut out of rock and then there was a big stone placed over it. So he puts Jesus' body in the tomb sometime around sunset on Friday. Now for the, for the Jews, their Sabbath was sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. So they get Jesus' body in the tomb and then they can't do anything for the next 24 hours because they can't come into contact with the corpse during the Sabbath. They can't do work during the Sabbath. So they go through the Sabbath, which would be our Saturday. They get to sundown on Saturday and it's sundown and they don't have lights and they don't have electricity. They're not going to take torches. So they don't go back to the tomb that night. But early Sunday morning, here come three women, two Marys and a Salome, to the tomb in order to uh, anoint Jesus' body. They're going to basically put spices on his body, not to slow the decay necessarily, but just to make it not quite so gross. And so they're on the way to the tomb. They get to the tomb and pick me up in verse 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here See the place where they laid him. 
So they get to the tomb, they enter into the tomb. There's a young man in a white robe sitting in the tomb. Mark doesn't make it explicit, but there's virtually no question that that is an angel. And they're scared, obviously, because they're coming expecting to find a body, and there's no body, and there's a living being, which is not the body that they were looking for, and they're scared. And the angel says to them, I know who you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And then what does he say? He is not here. He is risen. See, they were coming looking for Jesus. Same Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Same Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Same Jesus who said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. They are looking for life, the author of life, the creator of life, but they're looking for him among the tombs. As Luke says, one of the, Luke records one of the angels speaking to the women, saying, why do you seek the living among the dead? They were looking for life in a place where they were never going to find life. Uh, now, imagine a, imagine a scene with me for a moment. Imagine that you uh, or I, well, let's say it's you, come home from work on a Friday. You, uh, you kick your feet up. You crack open an ice-cold and refreshing Mountain Dew. And you decide that for dinner that night, you want a cheeseburger. A big, delicious, juicy cheeseburger. And so you're like, I'm going to do something about this. And so you get in your car and you drive to Chick-fil-A. And you get in that God-forsaken drive-in line at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Someone's been there. Why is it so long? And, And you wait your turn and you get up to the intercom and you're like, I'll take a double-double, please. And they're like, excuse me? You're like, I'd like a double-double. And they're like, we don't, we don't have that. And you're like, two patties, two cheese. I'd like a cheeseburger, please. And they're like, we can't give that to you. And you, you start getting a little bit worked up, so you pull out of the line. You go and try and find a parking spot. It takes you 10 minutes. You find a parking spot, and now you go into the Chick-fil-A. And you're like, I was the person outside. I'm here for a cheeseburger, and I want it. No matter how much you yell, no matter how big of a scene you make, you can jump over the counter and start looking through the refrigerators in the back. You'll probably go to jail, so don't, I wouldn't, don't, you know, don't do that. You can, you can threaten a lawsuit. You can threaten a social media smear campaign. No matter how hard you ask, you're not going to get a cheeseburger at Chick-fil-A. They don't have it. They don't do beef. They only do chicken. They cannot give you what you are asking for. And now I know a lot of you are like, that is a ludicrous story. And I'm like, but we do it every day of our lives. I don't think any one of us, I I think I can speak safely for all of us when I say, I don't think any one of us wakes up in the morning and the first thing we think is, I would like less life today. I I would like life to be harder. I would like to feel less healthy, less alive. I would like less life today. None of us does that. We wake up and we say, I want more life today. I want, I want my best life now. I want the life I've always wanted. I want abundant life. I, I, I want more life. And yet each day we head out into the world and we ask things to give us life that cannot do it. We ask things to give us life that simply cannot give us the things they are asking for. We spend so much of our time going to Chick-fil-A trying to get a cheeseburger. We ask our spouse to give us life and they can't do it. We ask our kids to give us life and they can't do it. 
We ask our job to give us life. We ask our house to give us life. We ask our cars to give us life. We ask our watches and our purses and our wardrobes. We ask our vacations to give us life. And we are asking them to give us something that they cannot give us. Because there's only one place we get life. And that is in Jesus Christ. John chapter 10, he says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Listen to me. Everything in creation that is living has life on borrow. Every tree, every bug, every blade of grass, every spot of mold, every human being, anything that has life, it is borrowing its life. There is one thing, there is one person that has life in and of itself, and that is God. He is the source of life. He is the only way to get the life you've always wanted. He is the only way to live your best life now. He is only the only way to find abundant life, and we are so tempted to look for life in places that we cannot find it. We look for life where we can't find it. So that's the first thing I want us to see. Now the second thing I want us to see in this passage, we look for life where we can't find it. And then this, the second thing is going to be, forgot it, memor, didn't memorize it. We are loved just as we are. We are loved just as we are. Now, this actually might be my favorite part of the passage. Well, I like, obviously, besides the part where Jesus rose from the dead, defeated sin and death forever, restored an ability for us to have a relation, right relationship with God again, this is my second favorite part of the passage. So pick me up in the next verse, verse 7. This is the angel continuing to speak to the women. He says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, this, like, without some context... We're like, okay, that's nice. Jesus is going to go see his disciples again. Wonderful. But what do we know about the disciples in this moment? We don't even know where they are. They, they, have, they have completely failed in every way that would be possible to fail over the last two and a half days. So these disciples, there's 11 of them now, uh, these are the guys who have spent the last three years with Jesus living with him, traveling with him, working with him, doing ministry with him. They've prof professed their allegiance to him, their love for him. Some of them have even said, we will die with you. And, and on the night that Jesus is praying in the garden with his disciples, and he's like, guys, can you please just stay awake? And that one hits home for me because, like, you know, my kids are like, dad, can you please stay awake? And I'm like this on the couch. He's like, can you please stay awake? They can't stay awake. And then, and then the Roman soldiers show up and they arrest Jesus. And what does Mark 14, 50 tell us? They all fled. Doesn't say some of them, doesn't say a few of them. They all left him and fled. And maybe nobody has had a lower experience over the last couple days than Peter. Peter is the one who was like, I will die with you, Jesus. He's the loud, boisterous, outspoken one, always putting his foot in his mouth. And at the Last Supper, Jesus tells him what? Three times you're going to tell people you don't even know who I am. We say he's going to deny Jesus. We don't talk like that today. He's like, three times, Peter, you're going to tell people that you don't even know who I am. Like, you claim to be my best friend, and you're going to tell people you don't even know who I am. And Peter's like, never me. And then the next day, he's in the courtyard outside the high priest's palace, and a little servant girl, like not someone to be afraid of, is like, 
weren't you with Jesus? He's like, never, no, no, I had no idea who that guy is. I've never been with the guy. Three times he does that. And here comes the angel speaking to the women. After all of this has gone down, after the disciples have just utterly failed in every way possible, and he's like, Jesus wants to see the disciples. Do you know what I would have told the angel to tell those women if I were Jesus? And we can all thank God that I'm not. I would have said like, tell, tell the disciples, thanks for nothing, hope you didn't sell your boat, have fun fishing for the rest of your life. What does Jesus say? Tell them I can't wait to see them. They have completely blown it. They are, why do the women in verse three, why do they have to say to each other how are we gonna roll the stone away from the tomb? Because there's no men with them. They don't even know where they are. They're hiding somewhere. And it's the women who have the courage to go back to the tomb and treat the body of Jesus with respect. And Jesus is like, tell those knuckleheads, I love them so much and I can't wait to see them again. Because we are loved just as we are. Now, I'm going to try and paint a few scenes that hopefully will hit home with most of you. Because um, I, know, I know a lot of us have, have seen this happen. I have seen it happen in multiple arenas, primarily the ones I'm about to describe to you. Okay, so imagine you're trying out for a sports team, and you're, you're killing it at tryouts. You're playing the best you've ever played. And there's a couple of guys or, or girls, depends, you know, what kind of sport you're playing, uh, who are there at tryouts, and you're watching them, and you're like, no way they're making the team. Like, hasn't made a shot turns the ball over three out of four times, they touch it, um, not in good enough physical shape. And then the day that they post the team comes out, you didn't make it, and those two people did. And it's like, what? They were terrible. And yet they made the team. Okay, now imagine you're applying for colleges, and you got your heart set on a certain school. And you're like, I got the grades, I got the National Honor Society, I got you know, 8,000 hours of community service. I've, I've got it all. I'm getting into this school. And, uh, and someone else, you know, at your school is applying and they are not as smart as you. They're not as gifted as you. They're not as good looking as you. They don't do well in school. They didn't make varsity, whatever. And then they get in and you don't. Or imagine you're at work and you're crushing it, meeting all of your goals, you're, you're like, you believe, at least in your own eyes, you're the star performer on the team. You're like, you can't wait for promotion season and bonus season to come. And there's, there's someone on your team who you're always picking up their slack. You're, you're always covering for them. You know, you're working 60 hours a week. They're putting in maybe 30. And then promotion time comes and, you, you know, your boss is like, hey, we need a little more time with you. But that person got put two levels above. And it's like, like, how does this even work? Here's the deal. We all want to be the people I just described who are like the stars. We're all the knuckleheads who don't deserve it. We're, we're, we're all the people who don't deserve to make the team. We're, we're all the people who don't deserve the promotion. We're, we're all the people who, who don't deserve to get into the college. And yet God looks at us with all of our hair and warts and all of our failures and, and sorry excuses, and he's like, I love you just the way you are. And if, if anyone is here today and you're like, God, you know, I, I, God couldn't love me. You, he, you, you don't know what I've done. He does. You, you don't know what I'm like. He does. You don't know what I struggle with. He does. And his word to you this morning is tell them, I cannot wait to see you.
because we are loved just the way we are. There is nothing we can do to make God love us less, and more importantly, especially for a place like Silicon Valley, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. We are fully loved and fully accepted just the way we are. And I believe God's word this morning to all of us is tell those people at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship on Easter morning, 2022, I am going ahead of them and they will see me just as I told them and I can't wait to see them because we are loved just as we are. Third thing I want us to see out of this passage, draw out of this passage, last one. I can sense the natives getting restless. The empty tomb is scary. The empty tomb is scary. That's not like a happy Easter morning, uh, happy Easter morning point, but I think it's, I think it's, I think it's the big idea of, of this text that we're looking at. The empty tomb is scary. So pick me up in chapter eight, or excuse me, verse eight. Uh, the angel finishes talking. Mary, Mary, and Salome, verse eight. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, some of you might be asking or wondering, Pastor Gary, why did we stop at verse 8? There are more verses in my Bible. Now, I don't want to open up a can of worms. We don't have, a ton of, we don't have the time to dissect what this is all about, so you're going to have to take my word for it. We can talk about it offline afterwards. Most scholars agree that Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. There are several manuscripts we have that have different endings that don't agree, but all of the extant manuscripts that we have agree up to verse 8 of Mark. And so most scholars agree that the true ending of the Gospel of Mark is verse 8. And that's weird. Because if you know anything about the other Gospels, what do you know? After the empty tomb, all the T's get crossed and all the I's get dotted. There's not a lot of ambiguity because they see Jesus and they meet with Jesus and he talks to them and they talk to him and he eats with them and they, they see him ascend into heaven and it's like there's no question about what happened after they came to the empty tomb but Mark brings us to the, the Easter morning story and the way that he finishes his 16 chapters on the life of Jesus is they were afraid. Are you kidding me? Like you can imagine why some well-meaning scribes or a well-meaning church leader got that manuscript and was like, boy, we got to add a verse or two here because this is weird. But I think it's awesome. It's not an accident. Some people will say like, oh, the last page of Mark got lost or he died before he finished the gospel. I think it's exactly how he intended to finish it because it draws you and me into the story. Why were they afraid? Because just like bringing a newborn baby home from the hospital, if that tomb was really empty, that changes everything. If that tomb was really empty, they couldn't just set that aside and go back to life the way that it was and maybe revisit it when it was convenient. If the tomb was really empty, then Jesus was who he said he was. King of kings, Lord of lords, beginning and the end, son of God, the coming Messiah. And if he was raised from the dead, that changes everything. If he is the true king, we said this last week, 
then he is the one who is to sit on the throne of their lives. And that means they needed to get off the throne. I think Mark finishes his gospel like this because it is not just the story of these three women. It is your story and it is my story and the empty tomb is scary. I said back at the beginning, one of my most scared moments of my life was the night I watched The Blair Witch Project. And I cannot believe, this is so so typical of me. Uh, Easter morning, I am using The Blair Witch Project as an illustration. That is, uh, just let's go with it. Why was that movie so scary? Don't watch it, I'm telling you, don't watch it. Because it was so real. It wasn't, it wasn't aliens in outer space. It, it wasn't a zombie apocalypse. It wasn't uh, scientists in a lab. It was a bunch of friends going on a camping trip in the woods. The, the woods that were just like the woods I had to drive home through from the movie theater that night. The woods just like the woods I camped in every summer when I was working at camp. The reason it was so scary is because I could see myself in the story. And the reason the empty tomb can be scary is because we can see ourselves in the story. It's one thing if it's a clean, kind of sanitized, well put together story about a Jewish carpenter who died 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. It's another thing if that empty tomb 2,000 years ago in the Middle East actually matters for you and I in the Bay Area of California in 2022. If the tomb is really empty and Jesus is really who he says he is, then that changes everything. And we can't just set it to the side and come back to it when it's convenient. We are not in control. And can we thank God for that? Because because when we're in control, when we think we're in control, what do we generally do? We generally make a big mess. But when God is in control, what does he do? He cleans up that mess. Listen, this is why I believe Christianity is true. It is why I have staked my life on it because to my knowledge, it is the the only system of faith, the only religion that says you can never be good enough to earn God's favor. Every other system of religion that I'm aware of is a system of rules, guidelines, regulations whereby you can earn your way to God. If you are good enough, if you work hard enough, if you follow the right rules, then maybe God will accept you. But the message of Christianity is that you could never do enough. You could never do enough for God to accept you and yet he loves you just the way you are. We are more loved than we could ever imagine. And I believe that for everyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. He is not here. He is risen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you, God, that in your gracious, loving kindness, you loved us so much, you sent your son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we thank you, God, that when you raised him in your power from the dead, in that moment, you showed your power over sin and death forever, and that we now have a hope and a future because of what you did for us on the cross and what your son Jesus did in coming up out of the grave. We thank you for the empty tomb. May the joy of what you have done for us overwhelm us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
we are now going to observe communion. And I just want to remind us as we prepare to take the elements that God's word makes clear that uh, the sacrament of communion is reserved for those who have made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of their life. And as I say every time we take communion, if that is not you, we would ask that you just don't partake in the communion elements with us today. But if that is you, there is no better moment than right now to say, I want to make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of our life, of my life. Uh, we took communion on Good Friday two days ago, and we had one of the children of our church come up to me afterwards and say, I want to accept Jesus as my Savior tonight. So he's active, he's at work, and there's no better moment than now to make the decision to follow him with your life. I would love to talk to you after service about what that looks like, what that means, and how we can support you. Uh, as we prepare to take the elements, we're going to sit quietly just for a few moments. Reflect on the meaning of the empty tomb. And then I will lead us in taking the communion elements together. You may want to start opening them as they can be a little bit difficult to get open. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. If you don't have the elements, we have uh, our ambassador team in the back. You could just put your hand up and they'll bring you uh, the communion cup. Please stand. Take the bread. And hear these words from Scripture. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Now the cup. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Amen. We're not going to have a song of response. Let's continue our worship, and I'll be up, back up for the benediction. Or 
a joy to be with you this morning. One quick announcement, uh, and I, I need you to act like Christians in this moment. The flowers are available to be taken. Act like Christians, please. It's Easter. So please feel free, if you're able to get here, to, to take a flower home with you. Now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. He is risen. Amen.